Hello. Before we get started with the show, we wanted to draw your attention to our crowdfunding page on Patreon. If you've been enjoying Always Take Notes, please do consider supporting us there. It helps us to keep the podcast going. If you support us on Patreon, you can get a great selection of rewards, including a shout out on the show and a selection of successful magazine pitches. Thanks to our latest donor, Virginie Jakoberger Levue. Apologies if that's a horribly mangled pronunciation. We emailed Virginie to ask a bit more about her, but we haven't heard back, but nonetheless, we're very grateful to her for her support. If you pledge $10 a month, you get a free two-month trial to Otter, worth $26 alongside the other rewards. Otter offers automated transcription and live note-taking for in-person and virtual meetings. I found it to be really helpful when organising interview material. You also get access to a series of mini-episodes from previous guests on the show, in which they answer three revealing questions. The latest episode features Ed Needham, the former editor of FHM and the editor of Strong Words magazine. Here's a snippet. And really good piece of advice I heard the other day was that any all creative writers should at some point drive a taxi rather than uh, doing your MFA or going on some elaborate course. Uh, you can see all of humanity in all its glory, all its awfulness, uh, driving a taxi and looking at it in the rearview mirror. So my second question, or the second question of Always Take Notes, is tell us about a time when you failed. Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, Rachel and I spoke with Terry White, who is editor-in-chief of Empire magazine and also a memoirist. We spoke to Terry about her entry into journalism and working at Laz Magazines, about becoming an editor-in-chief of Shortlist Magazine before the age of 30, and about Coming Undone, her memoir of mental illness. It's a fascinating episode and we hope you enjoy it. Welcome, Terry, to Always Take Notes. Thank you so much for your time. Could we start by talking about Coming Undone, your memoir, um, and the pieces that you that it grew out of? Yeah, so it, it actually started life as a series of 50-word um, uh, stories. So I had been in a psychiatric hospital in New York, and when I came out, um, I was doing AA. I was trying not to go out too much. I suddenly discovered I had all of these hours in my uh, days and nights to fill and a friend suggested that I start writing these little stories as a way to kind of process being hospitalised but also just as something to fill my time quite honestly and that kind of grew over the years they grew into um, I suppose longer short stories Um, and at that point it was never the intention to write a book I was just writing for the sake of writing really I'd always written um, I hate the kind of therapeutic thing, but it's absolutely true. It 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 really helped me process things over my entire life, actually. And then that grew and grew, and I started to write two very distinct parts, one of which was my experience in New York when I had the breakdown, which um, preceded my hospitalisation, and then my early years. And as they both grew, it became apparent to me that there may well be a book there and what was the decision to to write about something that was so personal you know it's been extremely well reviewed on publication and people have really said it struck a chord with them but for you yourself having been through these difficult experiences how did you feel about burying yourself in in such a way well it's funny because I'm a I'm a journalist by trade and you know there's a lot of confessional journalism these days but when I started out it wasn't such a huge thing and it was something I never did. I never liked writing about myself. I believe journalism is the act of uncovering other people's stories. And so I always veered away from first person, um, from revealing too much about myself. So it did take a bit of a leap, I think, to be able to actually do that. But I kind of felt this weird compulsion to tell the truth and the the more my recovery went on and I tried to kind of deal with my um, mental health issues and the trauma, my early life trauma that that had grown out of, it became apparent to me that I had to begin to tell the truth in one way or another. And as I was writing, it, it kind of, to be honest, it just fell out of me. I can't even say that it was particularly strategic or a decision I made. I just started writing about 
particularly my childhood and it just all kept coming and I was writing about things that I didn't even know I remembered um, and it took on a life of its own to be honest but I'm glad I didn't kind of have in my mind oh I want to write this book I'm going to have to dig into this bit of my life I think the organic way it came out was was for the good. And when you um, realised you had this material was that sort of as it is in the book or did it take a lot of sort of recrafting once you attach an editor on onto it not a huge amount i have to say and, and it is it's very close to what first came out obviously i did a lot of editing myself before i sent it to um my editor at canongate but the the style that i write in especially um the childhood stuff is quite stream of consciousness and it's it's not always linear and it doesn't follow a particular i suppose prescriptive um style it's it's very much a lot of it is in my head a lot of it is i'm trying to articulate what it's like to feel seriously mentally ill to feel completely lost to feel completely unmoored from yourself i was trying to capture exactly what that felt like and a lot of that just kind of spilled out as I was writing it and then I didn't want to too heavily edit that into being something a little bit more artificial I wanted it to be as raw and representative of how that felt as possible. One thing that we really like to go into on the podcast is the kind of mechanics of of how people get book deals and so forth so in terms of you know getting an agent getting a publisher how was this book sold was there a proposal or what was the, the process for that well well I know nothing about the book world I should say and I think people think if you're a journalist or I'm a magazine editor that you must also know about publishing and probably know loads of people and I know lots of people who've written books but I know nothing about the publishing world so I didn't really know what to do and I hadn't fully decided to write the book when I first got my agent so what happened is a friend of mine his wife who had worked at Faber for 20 years was setting up her own agency um, Anna Palai and she took me out for coffee and actually said oh I'm starting this literary agency do you have a book in you I was thinking some funny maybe sex book or dating book she probably didn't expect me to come back with harrowing memoir at that point. Um, funny, funny sex book wasn't actually what she got, but and and so I just told her at this coffee meeting. I said, "Well, actually, this this happened to me in New York. Nobody knows about it. I've I've kept it a secret essentially, but I have been writing about it." And I sent her some early stuff I'd written. She really liked it, and she helped me craft it into a proposal um which I only then had two meetings with two publishers and absolutely fell in love with the team at Canongate who completely got what I wanted to do was completely up for the book being kind of a non-traditional memoir and not following that three-act structure I think if I'd have taken it elsewhere there would have been much more pressure to maybe make it more palatable because it's very graphic in places but also to have I suppose a more traditional ending the redemption the resolution which absolutely isn't in my book at all. Well that was one of the things I was wondering about is where the publishers were wary of the material when you sort of took it to market um, but I guess you sort of hinted at the the climate around confessional writing has changed and I assume also sort of in the wake of Me Too and things like that it was a much more receptive um, audience. Yeah, I think it's still challenging because I think people are still, there are still boundaries of what is considered palatable and what is considered unpalatable. So I write about self-harm in in a lot of detail. I write about uh, childhood sexual abuse in a lot of detail. I write about my fantasies of killing the man who abused me. There's very little I I didn't write about. And it, for me, it was really important that it was written in a very detailed and realistic way because as somebody who'd been mentally unwell and had looked to books before to kind of uh, help me, not even work my way through it, but just see my experience reflected back, I found a lot of what I read quite sanitised and not in any way reflective for me of the absolute honestly grim horror that it, it it was to be abused that it was to self-harm and hurt yourself like that so that was a, a hard line for me that that had to be in the book and Canongate were incredibly 
supportive they're a very bold publisher i don't know if a more traditional publisher would have been as comfortable and i think it's challenging for audiences i think a couple of people have said to me that they found bits of it really uncomfortable that they found it too graphic that it um upset them too much that they found it too raw and i think they're all completely valid opinions but i didn't i have to say have anybody else's reception in mind when i was writing it not even my publishers i very strongly felt like I had to tell a specific story and I think I was just very lucky that I had a publisher that entirely supported that. Could you unpack a bit this idea that you mentioned of the kind of redemption obligation in this kind of book the idea as you say that there is a there's a, a set out three act structure that that it, you, you go to kind of nadir and then and then resolution do you think and, and, and particularly more broadly in the way that people I often find interesting in, in discussion and in writing about mental health, there's a feeling that it has to be retrospective, that you have to have this idea that you have reached this kind of state of of zen, you know, of resolution of your issues and you can look back on it. And I, I would agree with you that I think that's reductive. But do you, do you, would, you, would you say that's a, that, that is a kind of mould that these books are expected to... These books is perhaps the wrong term, but yeah. Uh, completely. I completely agree with all of that. Um, and it's something I feel very strongly about because there isn't an, an end point that's the thing when you're dealing with lifelong trauma and mental illness there isn't a a moment when you wake up and everything's now okay it's a lifelong challenge so if you're abused as a child that trauma stays with you for life you have to live with it for life if you have mental health issues and conditions they are with you for life so i wanted to be really clear that i was writing this book at a very specific point in my life it stops at a very specific point and there would be no resolution because there is no resolution. I continue just to live and to try and manage it and hope I don't end up back in that place. But I think it's an incredibly dangerous narrative to set out because people are in the grips of the most unimaginable pain and trauma and um, mental health kind of spirals. And what they see is, oh, oh, you'll be okay when you reach this point and you don't reach that point and you feel like a failure and you feel like you're somehow kind of an outlier and you're doing it wrong somehow. So I really strongly didn't want that in there. But it, it is interesting because, again, it's been another thing. A few readers have found me on Instagram and needed to know that I was okay now and needed to know that I'd resolved it. And I do now have a partner and I have a one-year-old son and I'm the most stable mentally and emotionally I've been in my life. But it's interesting that people need that kind of moment to say, oh, well, it's all OK now, because that's something I think we've come to expect from books, from from literature generally, but especially from memoir. From memoir, people need the happy ending, quote unquote. And I did resist it and I would resist it if I had to do it all again even though I think it may alienate some readers who really really need that as part of the book yeah I recently read um scar tissue actually and it very much fits that narrative of ending with you know him getting clean and his dog never seeing him use um I wondered whether uh you said you found the writing process therapeutic ultimately but I wondered when you were sort of in the in the whole thing on the page whether you found it sort of difficult to relive those experiences and whether even now sort of talking about them in interviews such as these whether you find it difficult to talk about it um sort of repeatedly <laughs> yeah i mean i i find it therapeutic with distance but as you say not in the moment so as i was writing it i said to my um my boyfriend afterwards it was like having my skin kind of lifted off and placed back on every day and I found the writing of it incredibly difficult, incredibly painful. And actually, for the first few months after I'd finished the book, I was like, why do people say this is therapeutic? That was horrendous. It felt like a compulsion. It felt like something I had to do, but it, it did not in any way feel enjoyable or pleasant or helpful. And then actually, it's only with a bit of passage of time that it's begun to feel like that. But I think... It, you know, I figured going in that it would be difficult because I was revisiting stuff I deliberately suppressed for decades and decades. I hadn't told my best friends about it. I hadn't told some of my partners about it. There were very few people in the world I'd actually verbalised it to. That's kind of why writing had always been 
really important to me because it became the safest relationship in my life and one that I could control. And the page knew everything, even when everybody else didn't. So I, I, I did find it incredibly painful, but I don't in any way, I have to say, regret it at all. How did you find that kind of catharsis through writing or the, the therapeutic effect of that with your experience of professional psychiatric care with with the the sort of medical approach to mental distress and, and therapy and, and things like that how did you find the the comparison between those two experiences I mean I I've only really intersected previously with um, mental health services and psychiatric care when I've been in crisis so when I've um, attempted suicide twice was the were the two times that I really engaged with it basically because you you have to because you're in hospital and and you know you have to engage with it to to be able to get out and and when you're in a psychiatric hospital as I was in New York your only aim at that point is to get out not actually to get better or to try and you know work through anything you're literally like get me out of here this is hell this is a nightmare so I'd it's only actually in recent years that I've properly engaged with it that I've got on a a proper course of medication that I do therapy and I think writing for me was a replacement for all of that not necessarily a satisfactory one I have to say because there are certain things writing writing can't do um there are certain obviously medical reasons that I need to take medication and there are certain services that a a qualified therapist can can really help me with that writing can't but I think writing was uh was my treatment for a long, long time. And it will it will always be. I still write um, when I'm in distress or when I'm I'm struggling with something. But I think these days I'm I'm hopefully at forty one finally mature enough to know that um it has to be all of those things together. You've mentioned um that lots of the material in the book will be new to people that are close to you, of course. Um are you still uncomfortable to a, to a degree with that sort of level of personal detail being out there or are you sort of past that now you've overcome that sort of mental barrier about the material? Probably weirdly a bit of both. I think anybody who says they're completely now fine with it is just can't be telling the truth because whichever way you cut it, you are sharing something that has been incredibly shameful to you probably for decades. So the thing with sexual abuse particularly as a child is the level of shame that you carry with you especially as you become a woman um how that affects your womanhood how that affects how you see yourself how that affects how you see sex everything is colored by this one experience and shame is baked into that and you also keep it secret and secrecy incubates shame at the same time so unpicking that and stepping away from that is incredibly, incredibly difficult. I do remember though, the day the book came out, I'd been so scared, really, really scared about revealing that amount of detail about myself, um, about what people would think, about what people would think professionally, what would people think at work? Would people no longer trust me? Would they think I'd been lying to them for years? And the day the book came out, I just felt this overwhelming feeling of relief that I didn't have to pretend anymore and that relief is still there for sure I I, there is still elements of shame that I kind of struggle with but I think that's perfectly natural for somebody in my situation and I think I work really hard to kind of uh get rid of that but I think that's probably something I'll I'll struggle with for for years to come because I think that's just part of how society views that stuff and how we as women are taught to see that stuff as well that's happened to us following on from that that point what do you think about the debate about kind of women in particular selling trauma as it were and maybe that's a crude way to put it but particularly the the sort of first person industrial complex the way it's the way it's suggested and the different way that these pieces of writing are perceived by women and by men I mean did you feel you were you were kind of in control of this process how, how did you feel how do you feel about that discussion about the, the kind of gendered aspect of it I mean, there are there are a couple of parts to it. One of which is um, definitely the gender aspect, which is uh, men write essays and women write confessional pieces. You know, there there is a great history of of men writing incredible first person narratives, and they're not considered in the same way. But at the same time, I do worry for young female journalists and writers who may feel that the 
the way that they can develop a reputation for their writing is to have to write those stories. I didn't write those stories for the first couple of decades of my career. And when I did write them, I was very, very, very specific about where they were published, about what I was willing to write. So the first first person piece I actually wrote was for The Pool, which was the website started by Sam Baker of Red Magazine and, and Lauren Laverne. And they just did brilliant, brilliant um, uh, women-centred journalism and I trusted them implicitly and I wrote about our time spent in a refuge mainly because I was furious about government cuts and I wrote this piece and I was very very careful about writing it about what I said about what I included about my family um, because their stories are their stories not mine and I've always said to young female journalists that I know please be sure that you want to write about that because it is out there forever and it will be out there forever and you will meet uh, the number of dates I've been on and I'll meet a man and he'd say oh I googled you and this came up about you and you have to be prepared that people know stuff about you before they even have met you and I, I d wouldn't want young women journalists to think that is the way that they need to get published or if they want to write a book that they have to write a confessional memoir. Um, I do think there's a snobbery around memoir um, and there's a shame about you know women selling trauma that this awful thing happens to you and and because of you know late stage capitalism you go out and try and flog it to the highest bidder that's never how I've seen it and I feel like memoir is an incredibly powerful form but the way it's considered especially at the moment can be incredibly reductive and you know I think I spent a long time thinking and writing before I put this book out there I don't know if I'll ever write non-fiction again I'm actually writing fiction at the moment but it was a book I felt compelled to write and there is uh, there was a little bit when my book came out I could sense a little bit of snobbery around the form which I found incredibly frustrating you know the writing in Coming Undone was as important to me as the story and the craft of the writing was as important to me as the story it isn't enough to have a shocking upsetting raw story for me your job as a writer is to tell a compelling story, story as artfully as possible. Um, so yeah, as I said, there are multiple parts to that. Um, multiple parts of it infuriate me. Um, but as I say, I, I, I don't want women to think that is their only option. I saw that uh, Coming Undone has been optioned for television. I wondered in terms of, uh, in a sort of dream scenario, who you would like to sort of translate your voice to the screen. In, in terms of a writer, yeah, we do actually have a writer attached, which is very exciting. So I don't want to say too much in case I like give that person away. But what I would say is um, uh, this, I've always thought Coming Undone was a very difficult book to adapt because the stuff in New York is present day. It's, it's in two tenses and it's in, in present day in New York and it's much more immediate and much faster. And the stuff in my childhood is past tense and some of it's quite dreamlike. It's stitched together memory. It's stitched together visceral experience. And there is stuff, lots of stuff I don't include. There's a decade in London where I became um, a magazine editor, which I didn't include because to me that had no relevance to the story I was trying to tell. And the story of the memoir was um, how this thing here in my childhood led to this moment here in New York. And people often want a completist narrative. And for me, a memoir is telling a very specific part of your story. So those were the bits that I was interested in. But there's all that bit missing. People wanted, a couple of people have contacted me and said, I was hoping for more like glamorous party scenes in New York, as opposed to just scene after scene of me drinking myself into blackout every night, which is decidedly unglamorous. And so... There aren't maybe the traditional scenes you'd expect in the book. And I always thought that would make Coming Undone a challenge to adapt. But I think what it also presents is an opportunity to fill those gaps um, in television because the book is, for me, is one part of my story, not the entire story. So I think it, it will take a writer with real imagination and also just real um, boldness because... The material is difficult, incredibly difficult, and it isn't. Um, it doesn't play it safe in any way. 
and I think for a writer to be able to see how they can translate that into a script that will play effectively on television will take a very special, very spirited, um, a very empathetic writer for sure. I know you're not in touch with your mum, right? But but what was the response from the rest of your family? And and I suppose what I don't know if, if you're happy answering this, but what do you think your mum who w- would think about it? So I'm not in touch with my mum or my dad, and I am very close to my brother and sister. And actually, my brother read it before publication because um, he had to verify some of the things in the book. And he he learned a lot of stuff for the first time, especially a lot of the stuff from when I was an adult and how ill I was in New York when nobody in my family really knew what was going on. And he was, you know, incredibly just wonderful about it and understood why I felt the need to write the book and was incredibly, incredibly supportive. You know, spoke of feeling guilty that he didn't know and hadn't been able to help me, but you know if when you're that ill if you choose to make that completely invisible to people you can and you will and I did um my sister was incredibly supportive as well but neither of them are really mentioned in the book there's one mention of them when we're walking down a path and I made that choice very deliberately because as I said earlier my story is my story and theirs is theirs and it is not my place to tell theirs and the same really with my mum so I made a choice very early on that I would only include stories about my mum if it was directly relevant to me and the story I was telling. So there were lots of terrible incidents that I chose not to include because they would have just been there to to paint her in a certain way and there wasn't any immediate consequence for me that made sense in the in the kind of narrative of the book. So I would hope that she would think it was fair. I I would hope that she would understand why I maybe felt the need to write the book. Um, I don't know if she's read it. She may well have done. But I, you know, I didn't in in any way feel... I knew that I'd been responsible around the people in the book and I knew that I'd been more than fair. So I didn't in any way, and I thought I might feel guilty or worried or, you know, like I'd, I'd screwed anybody over or anything like that because I hope I went out of my way to do to do the opposite. Message from our sponsor, Vitsu. Marta's story. If only each shelf could talk, reflected Marta, a Vitsu customer since 2004. Her shelving system began modestly and has grown over the years. It traveled with her from London to Valencia and now Amsterdam. This is the fifth time Marta has bought from Vitsu. Every time, she speaks with her personal Vitsu planner, Robin, who reorganised her bookshelves to fit her Spanish walls and her Dutch hoose. He even sent her extra packaging to protect her shelves with each move. You might say that their relationship has become a friendship over the years. Marta knows she is valued and trusts the advice Robin gives. If your shelves could talk, what would they say? Vitsu's 606 Universal Shelving System is a modular, adaptable kit of parts. It can form the perfect home for your books and even the desk from which to write one. Visit vitsu.com, V-I-T-S-O-E.com or request a free brochure via email at vitsu.com by quoting ATN 606. Vitsu, makers of long living furniture by Dieter Rams. Could we... um track back now and talk about your you know how you got started in journalism uh, in your 20s um am i right in thinking you started as a pa before you got your first job at women and home yes so um i did work experience on um the reception desk of marie claire i can't believe even receptionists got their own intern um but yeah i was every an intern on reception wasn't even allowed in the actual office i couldn't move off reception that was a fun three months um and then i i went back the following summer and got promoted to a features department intern which was terribly exciting because i was allowed in the office and when i was there i i found out that the magazine upstairs was looking for a pa and a editorial assistant 
So I um, got that job, was there nine months, the magazine closed, and then I got a job as features assistant at Woman and Home and kind of went from there. My, my ambition was always to be a magazine editor before I was 30, which was a completely arbitrary thing that I decided. I'd always been very ambitious and driven and work and school had always been a real kind of escape for me from home and then from kind of the difficulties of my own mind. So, and then I became editor of Shortlist, which was the men's magazine when I was 29. A big theme that comes up in a lot of our interviews is, is how difficult it is for people to break into the media if they don't have family in London, if they don't have financial support from their parents and stuff like that. Coming from this, the very difficult place you were in, but you know, not just what was going on domestically, but also where you were economically, how did you, how did you do it? Like, how did you make it work? Oh God. It was a nightmare, but it's way, I have to say, it's way worse now. Um, so when I did work experience, I came down to London. It was only the second time I'd ever been to London in my life. Came to London, stayed in a student halls in Bethnal Green. I think this was 1999. I think I paid 35 quid a week, maybe, for that room. Um, and uh, at night, I worked at Marie Claire in the day for free, obviously, because all internships were free. And at night I worked for a, a company that basically was an agency for stock refillers. Um, so you would go into a store after it had closed, like the big top shop, um, RIP, but I did do it in there and you would restock the shelves and replenish the shelves. So I'd do that at night and then I would um, uh, go to Marie Claire in the day. So, I mean, it wasn't, I hate to sound all Oliver Twist about it, but it, it was quite difficult. So. I only really had enough money to either get the tube to work every day or um, have lunch. So I'd alternate one day, I'd walk and have lunch the next day. And I remember when I was the features department intern, they used to send me out for coffees every day at three o'clock for the team. And I remember thinking, when I move to London and I get a job, I'm going to buy a coffee every day. And that was like a really exciting goal for me. Um, and when I moved down, in the end, it was because I got this job. It was paying 18 grand, which at the time was like the most money I'd ever seen in my entire life. And that basically, that job just changed my life. The man who gave me that job is now a very close friend. He became my mentor. Um, he was editorial director of Shortlist and Stylist, edited FHM and Men's Health. And he, I always say to him, he absolutely changed and saved my life because getting that job was just the start of, of everything for me. But I wouldn't have been able to move to London without a full-time job paying half decently as that one did. What were the sort of things you were doing in that um, features assistant role? Um, and what was sort of the journey from there to uh, the launch team at Nuts magazine? So the features assistant role was amazing because I've, obviously I was, what, 21, 22, working on a magazine for empty nesters, women going through the menopause. Um, but I worked with an incredible journalist called Tessa Hilton, who was one of the kind of first and most senior women on Fleet Street. And she'd taken this job after her newspaper career. She did it part-time and she was my boss. And she was an incredible uh, woman to learn from. So, you know, I would do um, case study interviews for her and she would send me these notes back I would hear her behind me typing all capital notes into my copy and I can still when I interview people and when I write up that copy I can still hear her voice well I can hear her notes should I say in my head in all caps and so that was a brilliant uh, learning for me and grounding in how to interview people um, in how to just create great copy and then from there, I went to Now Magazine, where I was the um, true life writer. So I was doing a lot of case study led stuff there. And then uh, my first boss, who turned mentor, called me up and said they were launching a magazine. They couldn't tell me anything about it. Um, but did I want to go and do it? And I was 23. It was good money. It was a deputy news editor job, if I remember rightly. And so I bit his hand off and that's what became Nuts Magazine. Can we talk about then what it was like working there and maybe just kind of where it fitted into the market and particularly given how kind of cultural sensibilities about men's mags and stuff have evolved since then. So we had Ed Needham on the show a few weeks ago who, who edited FHM back in the day and he was pretty thoughtful about this. But what was it like, you know, what was the kind of raison d'etre of the magazine and what was your experience 
as a young woman in that in that environment like well when it started I remember I mean I was already employed there when I found out what the magazine was called and what it was going to be about (laughs) um which that was always the way it worked it seems mad to me now but um and I remember thinking oh god that name is terrible oh god I've got to say every day I'm gonna have to pick up the phone and say hello nuts magazine that is just mortifying um but it started out very different than it ended up so if you look at the first couple of issues it was it was pitched as and I'm not joking the magazine for fathers and sons to enjoy together for you to put on your coffee table so the very first copies had um Nell McAndrew in some workout gear I think issue three or four had Beyonce in a um, top and a skirt. Like there was no nudity. There was no kind of glamour models weren't really a thing. Um, The real girl explosion, which was real girls sending in pictures of themselves in their underwear hadn't begun. So it was about football. It was about um, true crime. I did a lot of true crime stuff. It was about cars. It was it was kind of a a weekly version of FHM and Loaded was its original inception, and that weekly market, which had traditionally been a female thing, just exploded. The the perceived wisdom had always been men will not buy a magazine every week, but Mike Sutar, who was then the MD I think, and Phil Hilton, the editor, saw a gap, and there was a, another magazine happening across the city at the same time with the same idea called Zoo Magazine. That men, if men bought daily newspapers, which they did at that point in in their millions and millions, and they bought monthly magazines, which they also did in their hundreds of thousands, then why wouldn't they buy a weekly magazine? And it was huge. I mean, at its height, I think it was selling 320,000. But there was a definite pivot where obviously nudity came in, where glamour models replaced celebrities where the focus became more on um, titillation and on sex. And, you know, when you look back on it now, I I wrote a piece for The Observer just after I'd left because I was very conscious, especially the work we did towards the end, which was about real girls who were, by and large, working-class girls who saw the success of glamour models and thought that this would be the their way out of their situation. So they thought if they got published in Nuts magazine, they would get an agent, they would earn lots of money, they would be able to buy their own house, which happened to literally two or three girls, but in the main, they just sent in their pictures, we published them and that was it. And I was very conscious that for me, it was an incredibly successful period in my life. I was earning enough money to be financially independent, which had always been my concern coming from my background. Um, I got promoted a few times. I was still only in my 20s. But, you know, the, the more you look at it, the more I became aware that I, as a working class woman myself, I was benefiting from exploitation you could say of other working class women because I was essentially saying to them as part of that magazine are we going to give you the opportunity to get out of your area your situation when really that was never going to happen we were just kind of using that to sell magazines and I don't think also you can underestimate the impact that those magazines had on young men and young women what were we teaching young men who read the magazine it was never intended for teenage boys but all magazines have been read by younger people than the intended demographic what were we teaching those young men about sex what were we teaching them about the value of women i mean i'm i consider myself a a feminist and i i worked on that magazine i did eventually leave um I was increasingly uncomfortable and I wasn't the only person with uh, where we were going and and what we were doing and the amount of nudity and the amount of sex and how the magazine had changed. But let's be clear, I didn't stand up the day that we announced we were doing more nudity and and throw down my pen and say, I can't do this. I, I probably worked there for about a year after that. I, um, I read that piece that you mentioned um, and I'm, remember the anecdote about chopping off women's heads so that it was just the um just the breast basically was um an arresting one um and I like the way that you described it as um sort of using (laughs) using their breasts as a sort of career stepping stone for you I guess I wonder whether it's um I don't know whether you regret it but whether you sort of how you look back on that period now and what you learned from it and whether you thought you could have learned the same thing somewhere else yeah so I think part of it was 
my I think the the working classness of it, if you like, is intrinsically bound up in it. I was terrified that I was gonna right up until I was probably thirty five. I was terrified I was gonna have to go back to the to the village, that I was gonna be expelled from London somehow, that I was gonna be found out for not being a good journalist, that I was um no not good enough to be amongst the kind of middle class people I work with in journalism and I was constantly insecure about losing my job and not having any money I had no plan b I had no fallback I didn't have parents who would were ever willing to help me out or able to help me out but but not willing either so if I lost my job I knew that I would have to leave London and go where I'm not sure but that insecurity and that fear and panic drove me a lot of my 20s to the detriment I think of of some good decision making in terms of as I say Knots was not that when we started there were some brilliant journalists on it some brilliant magazine editors on it some of the best in the industry but when it when it took a very specific turn that should have been the point at which I walked but let's be clear that the people who can afford to walk are people with the economic stability and the support and who are usually middle class and have parental support that does there is a reality that that does enable you to make decisions in a very different way and I absolutely regret it because now I look back on it and think of course I'd have got another job of course I'd have been fine like but when you're 25 26 you can't see that all you can see is that you're desperate to have a career you're desperate to not have to go back to where I'd spent my entire life running away from and that kind of drove every decision I made and made me quite single-minded and I do regret that but I don't know how I would have changed that knowing how I felt at, at 25 and 26. Could you talk us through the the career steps that went after that from Maxim to Shortlist to, to New York how did how did this work and what kind of in retrospect do you think allowed you to move at such a, an incredible pace up the up the hierarchy I think it it was my to be honest my desperation my panic and my ambition and my ambition was born out of desperation and panic but also I'd, I'd learned at a very young age at school that I was you could be rewarded for being clever or you could be rewarded for hard work that all this negativity at home and all this chaos and and violence and awfulness at home that there you could create a space where none of that existed where actually you were rewarded for um, all the right things and I carried that through into my work and I thought if I could build this other reality where I was able to succeed and where everything was seen in a positive light and where I could work hard and where all of that would be rewarded and I think that the economic side of it was very, very important to me, which is, you know, my mum had never been financially independent. We'd, our family had existed on benefits and she'd relied on her partners. And, you know, that meant that she didn't have her own car. So she was she couldn't escape the house and drive away. It meant she couldn't take us and leave somebody because she had no money to be able to take us anywhere to even pay for a night in a and b and I saw the consequences of having complete economic dependence on somebody else um, or even just complete economic dependence on the state like she had no other options and I was always determined that I would have options that it would be in my control and that's I think what drove my ambition and my determination to prove that I was good enough and that I was something you know when you've kind of had the childhood that I had you internalize a lot of what you're told which is you know you're nothing you're nobody you'll never be anything and and part of your drive becomes the desire to prove that person or those people wrong um and I never stayed too long anywhere it's probably fair until you know empire my current job I've been there five and a half years which is the longest I've been anywhere and so I was constantly focused on a path which is how do I get to be an editor as quickly as possible and um when I was at Maxim, I saw that that magazine was probably going to close soon, that it wasn't doing so well. So I actually just quit and then called my old boss who was launching Shortlist, um, which was going to be the big free men's weekly and said, do you have a job for me? And he had one job left and he gave me that. Um, And and that was kind of, again, another, another big turning point in my career. 
Um, I noticed from your LinkedIn that you were freelance for, you know, the best part of a year. How did you find that in terms of the sort of financial aspect of that? Did it, um, you know, did it, was it a bit unnerving to have that more sort of feast and famine type income? Yeah, that was, it was for nine months, I think, and it was just awful. <laughs> like, it, I am not suited to being a freelancer. Maybe I am these days, but but not then, because, again, I didn't have, you know, I I lived paycheck to paycheck and so the thought of being freelance where people don't pay your invoice for like 60 days was um was frightening and I was single for all of that period and I lived alone so I was entirely responsible for paying my rent um so that wasn't I mean I enjoyed the freedom of doing multiple projects I was kind of consulting on magazines I was doing shifts um uh working on digital projects for newspapers and things like that so I loved the variety and getting to do um, lots of other things but yeah the the stability side of it was was still quite terrifying because I think I was 30 31 at that point so I still wasn't entirely financially secure enough to to for it not to be an issue could you tell us about um time out and then about empire you know we've covered some of the you know the the, the uh, mental health difficulty you had but just from a, like about the magazines themselves about what you were doing at time out and then about you know about your job at empire now so I was I was um, I was taken into time out with a very specific mission. I love a mission. Um, uh, that's where I'm at my best. And time out New York had been in had been around for something like seventeen years, but it kind of um, the the management team felt it'd become a bit staid, a bit traditional. It it kind of did the same cover the same week every year, um, and they wanted to make it a a proper multi-platform brand so um i think at that point they had a couple of people working on the website who just sat in a corner by themselves everybody else worked on the print mag this massive team and they said to me we want you to go in and modernize it and bring the team together so everybody's working across it um make sure the social media is working newsletters events and so I went in with that kind of brief and I was probably in retrospect a bit of a bull in a china shop. So I immediately did a big restructure um, uh, that meant quite a few people left the magazine. I brought in a, a new team, um, completely restructured how people worked. So they worked across everything and then redesigned the magazine to make it uh, more modern. Start to do things that I thought were more disruptive. So instead of doing 50 best meals um we did um uh are you in new york because you're anxious or are you anxious because you're in new york we did a whole issue on rage in new york and why people are so angry um and start to do things because i always felt like time out is best was part of the fabric of the city it didn't just reflect the culture it was the culture that you helped to create the culture and that you spoke to both the good and the bad of the city because every city is amazing and awful at the same time and to tap into both of those things to try and and work out the alchemy of of why people lived in New York what they wanted to talk about so um we did that quite quickly and we started to put celebrities back on the cover again we shot Lena Dunham with a Warhol riff when I was there um, we brought together Julian Casablancas and Karen O um, because it had been 10 years since um, that music scene on the Lower East Side we shot them together and we start to do all of these things to to hopefully bring a bit of life back to the print product but also to get the brand talked about again and then when I was there um, the business decided to take it free like the London magazine was free so we did that as well um, and it was only 18 months I was there in the end because I was offered the Empire job and, and obviously I'd been unwell. And this was the weird thing is um, the magazine, it was one of the best jobs of my life. The magazine won loads of awards. I won awards. Like the business were really happy with what was happening. The website traffic had gone through the roof. It was happy days. And then at the same time, it, I was also the most seriously ill I'd, I'd been in my life. And that was probably the most extreme example of me being able to juggle this really successful day job with this um this private life that was a complete mess um but it was an incredible incredible job and then the call came about empire and I didn't think I was quite done with time out but I figured that whoever got the editor job of empire would be there 
a long time because the, the editors of Empire tend to be there a long time. And I also knew that I was still quite unwell and that New York, for whatever reason, was exacerbating and incubating that illness and that if I stayed in the city, I think I would have... I think I'd have probably ended up dead, to be perfectly honest. Um, so it was quite an easy decision in some respects, although I had to kind of fight those voices going, who leaves? Like, I've got this amazing job with a massive office overlooking 10th Avenue and the Hudson. My my office at time out was pretty much the same size as my entire team office here in the UK. Good money, living in, in Manhattan, but... Um, it was it was not going well personally. So, um, yeah, so then I came back for Empire in September 2015. Was your mission at Empire in some ways similar to the one at Time Out in terms of bringing all that multi-platform stuff, you know, together? Um, I was interested to read about the commissioning process for a issue with James Cameron um, in terms of you know, getting stuff, getting him to do stuff for video, getting him stuff to do for the podcast, as well as the print edition and things for online. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about how the commissioning process has changed? Yeah, so Empire's always been an incredible magazine, print magazine, always, always. And then they had this very successful website and uh, this uh, podcast grew up out of it about eight years ago. But none of these things really spoke to each other. They were handled by different people in the team. They didn't really talk to each other necessarily. And, you know, the Empire team is probably a quarter of my team at, at Time Out New York. And, but they are the most incredibly passionate, which you'd expect on a specialist title, but still they're the most incredibly passionate, dedicated group of people I've ever worked with. And it was just kind of trying to bring the whole brand together. So it spoke the same language. So if you were on the website or in the magazine, or on social or on the podcast, even though they have different jobs, that it sh you should know you're in the same place, that you should know you're with the same people. Um, but at the same time, I also wanted to allow the individual voices within the brand to come out. We have incredible writers on Empire, we have incredible broadcasters, and to allow them to develop their voice under the kind of bigger Empire tone. And then again, I'd, we just wanted to do things to get more talkability and to, to modernise the magazine. So I felt like the magazine had an opportunity to continue to be relevant. I think the death of a print magazine is when you essentially become almost a tribute to yourself. So you've been going 30 years and, you know, here you are talking about old films again and the same filmmakers. And for me, you should be able to rip off the cover of a magazine, including the date, and you should be able to know the year and preferably the month in which that magazine was published, it should reflect and speak to the life and the culture we exist in now. And I didn't think that Empire always did that at that point. So we, yeah, we did a complete redesign again and we've um, tried to make it more discursive um, because film now is a big conversation. It's not us giving you the film fan information. Film is a is a huge conversation and, and tried to make it kind of maybe a bit more vibrant and bold um, and and also broadened out who Empire is for and who it covers. So for me, Empire should be something that is enjoyed by any and all film fans. If you love film, Empire should be your home. And I think it's fair to say that for many years, the, the filmmakers we focused on, um, for example, uh, were very white and male. I don't think anybody would argue with that. And what we wanted to do as a team was to make Empire more representative of of the film community and of film fans. And, and we should be talking about a female director or a black director with as much regularity and passion and prominence as we do a, a James Cameron or a Steven Spielberg. So that's been kind of the big push on the mag is to make it much more um, diverse and representative because that's what film is. Film is rich and diverse and it has its issues and it's had its issues over the years. But, you know, this year we've got two women in the running for Best Director at the Oscars for the first time in history. There's still a huge amount to be done, but we are at, I think, an exciting point where things can actually change. And as the world's biggest film magazine, Empire has to be part 
of that change and it has to it had to open its doors to everybody who loves film not just a particular type of person and that that for me was the big mission that we continue on on with today so we're coming up against against the end of our time but i just had one one final question which was about the difference between american and british journalism this is a real strand that comes up in a lot of interviews and i went to journalism school in new york and i i worked there in my in my early jobs as well and and how have you found that that kind of cultural difference you've mentioned just the resources there's different staff and things but how have you you know how what, what's your experience of that i mean u.s publishing is a business i mean i know british publishing in but my god you know it's a business in america like the PL is is something else entirely it's much bigger money i mean just because of the, the amount of you know look at america as a as a country my friend edits people magazine i think their circulation is 3.2 million <laughs> i mean America is massive, so it is. Everything's bigger. Everything is, um, I think, slightly more intense. I think the working culture in New York, certainly what I experienced, is insane. Quite frankly, like sixteen, eighteen hour days, people emailing you in the middle of the night expecting an answer. I was definitely guilty of then emailing my staff on a weekend, like being furious they didn't reply because that was the culture. The culture, I think, is can be very unhealthy. I think there's probably been some... People have had to start looking at that recently, I think. But I I found it very aggressive, very much a business. And I found US publishing actually much more conservative, which, again, I, I suppose makes sense, given um, uh, the nature of the country. But British publishing has always been scrappy, a bit weird, a bit bonkers, you know, look at some of the magazines this country has produced, some of the ideas. Think about more magazine position of the fortnight. You ever imagine that existing in like Atlanta or something? It's a British magazines have always had a verve and a spirit and they haven't always lasted and they've kind of come and gone. But I've always felt like the ideas and the innovation and the willingness um, to try something in British publishing has always been something I've been really drawn to. And maybe that is because the stakes aren't so high because we don't sell 3.2 million magazines a week. Um, but I, I, I honestly think British magazine media is, is one of the best in the world. And I know it's obviously had a really tricky time and not all magazines have, have survived, but it is still a really rich vibrant industry that I think still even in these difficult days embraces um, change and embraces continued risk and innovation and I think risk and innovation is the only thing that will save this industry. Well that seems like a perfect note to end on. Thank you so much Terry for your time um, and for speaking so candidly. Um, It was great to get you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. That was the Always Take Notes interview with Terry White. You can follow her on Twitter at Terry with an I underscore White, and you can buy her book, Coming Undone, which is published by Canongate. Hello, it's us again. Simon, what was your main takeaway from the interview with Terry? I thought it was very moving, actually, and I thought she spoke very candidly about her book, but also about you know how what writing such a, a revealing and very personal book was like. Um, and, you know, I think really, really brave act of her to, to do that and laudable and also to come on and, and speak very honestly. And also, I think honesty was a big thread through it, the way she spoke about her early career and, and how she felt about you know, some of those earlier jobs that she did and how she was able to, to have this ostensibly, extremely kind of successful uh, life, but actually was in a real state of turmoil and, and distress um, internally. What about you? Yeah, I really appreciate her candor about, um, I mean, everything, but in particular working at um, Nuts, a magazine which now is obviously considered, um, you know, it's not particularly uh, fondly remembered. And her talking about her financial position and saying, you know, she didn't have something else to fall back on. And actually it was important that she took that job and gained that experience to be able to continue in journalism and get other jobs. So um, I thought that was really refreshing, um, especially given that journalism can be quite a middle middle class world. So yeah, it, I think it was um, great to get her perspective. Yeah, and good as ever to 
to discuss the financial aspects of it. Anyway, this has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Aikum. And me, Rachel Lloyd. Our producer and social media editor is Artemis Irvin. Our graphic design is by James Edgar, and our score is by Jess Danheiser. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Always Take Notes, on Twitter at Take Notes Always. If you'd like to support our crowdfunder on Patreon, we're on there as Always Take Notes. And if you'd like to leave a review on iTunes or get in touch with us via our website, please do. Many thanks. Goodbye.